Get a rare view into the human side of wealth management leaders, innovators, and influencers with the Big Reveal podcast from Suzanne Syracuse in partnership with InvestNet. Tune in and subscribe to find out why she calls it the Big Reveal. One in four women and one in six men are survivors of sexual abuse or assault. That means you or someone you know has survived an external and internal battle for your soul, which most often no one else will ever see unless you tell your story. This is Journey On, Survivors Healing from Sexual Abuse and Assault. My name is DJ Burr and I'm a survivor. I was molested at 16 years old and raped at 18. I didn't know what surviving looked like back then, but I do now. Join me as I talk with survivors and hear their experience, strength, and hope on the road to recovery. Hear our stories and share your own. You are not alone. Welcome to Journey On. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode. I'm DJ Burr, and today I am speaking with author Eddie Kedge. Welcome. Thank you. So, Eddie, uh, tell me what was appealing about coming on to Journey On when I asked you? Well, I was familiar with season one, and you had a lot of really compelling guests. And I must say, uh, people I would not expect to hear, um, James Reyes comes to mind. And, and that was an interview that was um, both illuminating and disturbing. Um, and although I'm not in the category of Mr. Reyes, I am also illuminating and disturbing. <laughs> and so I thought it would be a good fit. Great. Well, you know, that was one of the most interesting interviews that I had. And I, I'm glad that I, I, I had that interview. And um, and some of our listeners reached out um, prior to me doing that interview. I kind of kind of put it out there to a select few. And they said, absolutely tell his story. And so I think uh, it's important to tell all of our stories. And so I, I'm glad that you're here today so we can hear a bit about your story and we can have a dialogue about male sexual abuse and how we survive. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, the abuse part is, is really just the inciting incident. It's, it's the first step in, in the journey of survival. And I don't get too caught up in the, the details of each survivor's particular um, crimes that they've had to endure, ultimately, regardless of of your perpetrator, the the net result is the same for all of us. Um, and it's an especially cogent point because I'm an actually a, a ten percenter. So, if we look at the statistics, ninety percent of children who are abused are abused by somebody that they know, either a trusted family member that they love or a family friend or some incidental person who they are aware of. Um, only 10% of the people who are abused as children actually get abused by a stranger. Um, and I'm a 10%er. And I used to go to a lot of events. And um, I have a good friend, and he puts on a really great presentation. And he would start the presentation with, it doesn't happen. If, if your kid's going to get abused, you know, look at the look at the creepy uncle, look at the the coach, look at the all of these people in the kid's life. Those are the people who are going to abuse the kid. And I said, um, well, actually, it, it does happen. You know, 
one one out of ten it does so i'm a ten percenter but you know regardless of the outcome as i said regardless of the particular details um it's exactly the same alienation uh shame feelings of degradation and worthlessness um those those carry on throughout the the male survivor's experience it has very little to do with the circumstances of the abuse and what's astonishing to me is when i hear stories of people who seem like they did not have a very i don't know profoundly traumatic experience are just as affected as people like me who had a much more terrifying situation occur and and I could get into that a little bit if you want to hear it. I think it might be helpful for the listeners to hear a snippet of of what happened. Okay. Um well, in 1980 I was in first grade and uh, I was an only child, still am. Didn't have a lot of contact with other kids and was basically raised by my grandmother up until the point when I started public school. A lot of this may sound familiar to people. So you have an already a child who's sort of isolated and vulnerable. And um, as soon as I hit the public schools, I have a bully who wants to kick my ass. And, you know, being raised by a grandmother, not really having a dad, you don't have a lot of social skills, especially dealing with other boys. You know, they're violent, they like to push and shove, and I wanted nothing to do with it. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, I actually thought being a girl would be way better because they got to play more cooperative games. They weren't constantly trying to loogie each other. They, they <laughs> made pretend cookies and pretend ovens, and that sounded like really nice. Like, I want to eat pretend cookies. I don't want to go out and get a wedgie and an Indian burn. I want to I want to hang out with, with the nice people. <laughs> um, and so that was my space where I was coming from. And so the kid comes up to me. I'll never forget him. Blue eyes, toe head, and he looks straight at me. I'm going to kick your ass after school. And I I was terrified. And I knew that if I hung out after school with our old daycare, which was right adjacent, that I was going to get my ass handed to me. I just, you know, that was not something I was up for. And um, so I ran away. And I didn't just run home. I ran all the way through town. I ran to the highway. It's getting dark. I'm lost. I don't know what to do. I'm hoping that I'm going to see my my father. when I was about six, my mother remarried and I was adopted um, by a man who became my father, the only father I'd ever known. And I was thinking, okay, well, you know, he drives this highway every day. I'm going to spot his car and he'll take me home and, and I'll get out of this situation while I never saw his car. And the sun's going down. But I did see one car and it was driving very slowly back and forth. And this is rush hour. So you've got these lights zooming in every direction and there's one car. He was doing about 25 miles an hour, and I can feel his stare. I can see the driver, and he's looking at me. Well, I freak out, and I run. There is a Alpha Beta supermarket about a half mile away, and I was familiar with it. We'd go shopping there, and I was this is a safe place. And uh, I make it about three-quarters of the way to the Alpha Beta supermarket, and where, where is this car now? It's right there in the parking lot waiting for me. And I turn around, I spin the other direction, I run back the other way. And, you know, at this point, I'm in a pure panic. I'm six years old, seven years old, and um, I've just got tunnel vision. 
and all I know is just like the terror, like the deer in the headlights. And so I, I don't, I'm not thinking clearly. I don't realize um, the the futility of what I'm doing. And um, and so the man, you know, ultimately gets out of his car and captures me and drives me to a vacant lot where he disrobes me and sexually assaults me and leaves me for dead. Basically, I felt like I I'd been murdered. I, I didn't I didn't understand what was happening to me and I didn't understand um, you know why why anybody would do this and and I was just numb and I'll always remember that before he left he said kid I know who you are I know your parents I know where you live don't tell anybody well um, in most child abuse stories this is the part where the child never tells anybody um, this is the part where the child lives with this burning secret forever and keeps it from his family um, in my case, you know, I'd been kidnapped. I'd been, I was not at the daycare. My parents knew I was gone. They knew there was something that was wrong. And so, um, sometime later, and I, I can't tell you if it was an hour, or two, or four, my father found me wandering. He, he searched the town looking for me. And this is a small town. Searched the town looking for me, and he finds me wandering up the street and, and takes me home. And of course, then the questions. Where have you been? What happened? What did you do? What, what's what's the what's the problem? And uh, you know, it, it it was it was difficult to try and communicate that. For one, when you're just in first grade, you really don't have the language. Um, and and two, I had been a coward. I was running from a bully, and I was not going to tell that story about how I had failed to stand up to a bully and instead done this thing that. Turned out to be a thousand times worse, so so I was really reticent to sort of tell the story. But the cops were coming and they were asking me all these questions: Who was this man? What did he look like? What was his car? Did you get his license plate? Did he touch you? And these were questions that I was answering grudgingly, but I really didn't want to relive this moment in front of my parents, in front of the cops. And and so when it came to those sort of personal questions, I nodded yes that he touched me, and they asked me if. Uh, he made me touch him, and I, and I nodded, yes, yes, that, that happened too. And so, uh, the cops took my statement and they take me down to the hospital. It was actually the same hospital I was born in, in a small town. Wow. And uh, they're ready there for me, and they put me in the exam room, and they do the whole once-over with the doctor, which, by the way, felt like another violation, because it's the same sort of, you know, strange man, but this time under high-watt lights. And uh, so he looks over every inch of my body to look for bruises, scars, um, any, any kind of signs of abrasion. And um, after that, we were taken to the police station and the, the police, you know, to get the composite artists. And, you know, I remember everything that happened. I remember the, every detail, but I can't remember the things like what his hair color was or how tall he was or, you know, the things like that. You don't, you don't think of that as a... As a child, you, you, you just think of like, oh, oh my goodness, you know, why is this happening? How can this be? How can this be real? So I was not a very good witness, and as far as I'm concerned, the gentleman—I'll use that term loosely—the gentleman was never caught. Um, mm. Ultimately, I, I read some archived newspaper stories from that same time. This was January of 1980. And the newspaper indicates that this was a serial offender, that two other boys 
have been molested by somebody who fit the similar description as the man that I had uh, told the police about. Um, so we have a serial offender who keeps getting more and more aggressive in his um, in his attacks. And I looked at the mug books. I didn't see anybody I noticed. And you know, finally that night the detectives said, "Okay, well you can go home." And it must have been close to midnight by that point, and I was just exhausted. And I'll never forget driving home in the car. I'm finally I feel safe again. Like the back seat of the car, just in the dark. It's quiet. And I hear my mother's voice break the silence, and she says, "Eddie, we're not going to tell anybody about." So our stories are often the same, you know, even when you do tell, you're told not to tell. Wow. So here you are, a first grader, right, who's suffered tremendously, and then you're told not to tell. I just can't... I'm, I can imagine what that must have been like for you at such a, a fragile young age to, to get that message and having to hold that in, internal, you know, and to internalize that, right? Right, which is why, as I said at the beginning of my remarks, I really don't fixate too much on the individual acts of abuse as, you know, what the responses are by the adults, by the community, what, you know, what the kid is is driven to do um, either to cope or to, to to cover up or you know to manage um, you know and those those are the things where our stories always intersect and, and there are so many parallels um, and even though I did not have a sexual abuser who was manipulating me and gaslighting me I had somebody who was basically an advocate of a sexual abuser emotionally abusing me gaslighting me um, so, you know, obviously this was an extremely traumatic experience. It was a, a catastrophic trauma. I had a, the onset of PTSD within the next couple of years. And my mother was actually blaming me for moping, for not having friends, for being alienated. All of the ancillary symptoms of the post-traumatic stress injury, they call it now, uh, were manifesting um, by the time I was 10. And my mother's answer to me was, well, you need to go out more. You need to play sports. If you were not so bookish and mopey and sat in your room so much, then you'd be a happy person with your problem. And um, so that, that was basically my experience growing up was an antagonistic family who blamed me for having the symptoms of trauma. Um, to her credit, she did try and get counseling for me. What, what she did was she sent me to her marriage counselor. Her and my father had only been married for three or four years and they were already in marriage counseling, which tells you something right there. And the marriage counselor, I learned later, didn't want to take me. Because she knew she was wholly unqualified to deal with a child who had just 
experienced a catastrophic sex crime. And she, she did, didn't, you know, she, ethically, she didn't feel like she was professionally prepared to take on that kind of a, a case. Um, but my mother insisted. She said, oh, you know, we have no one else. You have to take this. And so I, I saw a marriage counselor for sex abuse um, for a couple of weeks. And, and I will say that she was absolutely right. She had no business seeing me because it was probably more scarring than, uh, than it was therapeutic, um, mostly because there was this elephant in the room which is, hey, you just got attacked and sexually assaulted. And I'm told not to talk about it, but I'm dying to talk about it. And it's never brought up. You know, a therapist never brings it up. Um, you know, we talk about these esoteric, like, tertiary emotions, you know. Let's talk about frustration and disappointment. <laughs> Again, I, I'm a... Yeah, you're not in couples therapy. <laughs> exactly. But that was her modality. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was really traumatizing to have this <laughs> couples therapy counselor who was wanted to work a you know, the systems theory on me for <laughs> oh man. for something where I, you know, I needed an advocate in the room. And um and that just didn't happen. She saw me, you know, as a stopgap effort. Um, and, and from basically from then on out, any other time I saw any kind of therapist, it was under the auspices of my child's a behavior problem, doctor, do something. He's failing in school. Let's test him. Do something about his failing in school. He's, uh, he's, you know, defiant doctor, do something about this kid who's defiant. Um, and, and so all of the therapy that I had, um, was under the assumption that the family was fine and I was broken. It had nothing to do with the toxic system that I was living in that was gaslighting me, the, the denials, the, um, the refusal to accept the fact that I was increasingly experiencing the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, including suicide ideation. I mean, I was... In seventh grade, I remember I was already trying to think of ways to die in seventh grade. So there was absolutely no support on behalf of my family. And, you know, I will say this. None of these dysfunctions bloom in a vacuum. So my mother was an orphan of divorce and alcoholism and her own mother, who was a single parent who had to work. So she was um, extremely lonely, maladapted person, and I think that created a, a narcissism in her that prevented her from having a, the most basic empathy. That that if you study the narcissistic personality disorder, those usually start in childhood and adolescence from people who feel like they're. Um, unwanted and lonely and so they invent these grandiose narratives um, similarly the father that adopted me who came uh, from a traumatic background he was an orphan too but he was orphaned by extreme addiction um, both of his parents were raving alcoholics um, his father was functional and his mother was just a stay-at-home drunk who was you know, provided absolutely no support or any kind of um, 
love. And so you have two people who are already extremely damaged, now with a son who's also extremely damaged. And, and so while I cannot um, you know, accept the fact that they decided to sort of just throw me under the bus and, and not deal with these problems, I can sort of understand sure. how they could be as seemingly callous as they were. They didn't have the skills. They didn't have the skills, and more importantly, they weren't interested in gaining the skills. Yeah, I, I'm a parent, and I didn't have the skills either. But the one thing that I realized is you can get the skills. It's not you can get you them. You can get them, and it's worth it. Absolutely, and unfortunately, sometimes there's so many internal barriers that uh, a person has to get through in order to to get those skills, and uh, along the way, their their children may suffer. And you mentioned, you know, you didn't have an advocate in the room. When did you get an advocate? Or did you ever get one? I'll tell you one more quick story about never having an advocate. So, um, as you might imagine, as a teenager, I I descended into pretty deep um, drug and alcohol abuse. And, you know, I have a therapist now who who posits the fact that uh, I was so... um, immersed in that culture of, of drug abuse. It was mostly, you know, pot and, you know, taking some mushrooms, which, oddly enough, they're using, um, what is it, um, MDMA, ecstasy, for treating things like PTSD. Right. So I was sort of medicating myself in a, in a very uh, advanced, progressive way. That's true. And... Um, my therapist said, yeah, it's probably the drugs that were keeping you alive. So I thought that was an interesting take because for a long time I used to, you know, this was during the Reagan era and I was down on, on my, myself. You know, losers take drugs. If you want to be a winner, you just say no. And so um, for most of my life, I've been very self-critical about those, that episode. You know, I don't, I don't take drugs and I'm not a, you know, that person anymore who stays out just on vendors day after day. Um, but but it's a part of my life that I used to be very ashamed of. Um, and, and now I realize it was actually not so much self-harm as self-preservation, which was an interesting way to look at it. Uh, but to answer your question about, about you know, having an advocate in the room, um, so, you know, I developed this, this cadre of friends who were, who were advocates for me. And I, you know, I think because we all had our own sort of intersecting dysfunctions, um, we we had a lot of commonalities. And of course, at this time, no one ever talked about sexual abuse. If you look at the statistics, one in six boys are abused. So if I'm in a room with twelve of my buddies, at least two of us have had a similar experience. I know that now, but of course, at the time, I thought I was the only one in the world who'd ever experienced anything even remotely close to this. Hmm. Um, so that was my first experience with just, you know, having people who were advocates for me. Um, but really the change didn't come for me until decades later. I, I dealt with the symptoms of PTSD for close to 35 years, undiagnosed. I I was gassed at the whole time. So even as a 25 year old or a 30 year old, you know, I still had a relationship with my mother who was still telling me the same thing. If you would just take responsibility for your life, if you would just quit being so depressed, if you would just find a job, if you would just buck up, 
you would be happy. Um, and the linchpin was the Penn State scandal, the Jerry Sandusky blow up. And it was really triggering because, you know, here you have this guy who's this massive offender. And now this issue is, for the first time in my knowledge, a nationally um, available discussion. This, is, this was not a discussion that was available before. This was not a, a discussion that I'd seen in public before. And so now we have these people who are coming out of the woodwork talking about how they were abused and we have uh, experts coming on talking about things like grooming and talking about all of the insidious things that Sandusky did and the denial that Penn State and you know the wholesale refusal to admit what's going on and I'm thinking this is sort of my family in a microcosm um, regarding all of these machinations that we'll do to not have to deal with a very very obvious problem. And so it was really triggering for me. And I was, I was going through some um, extremely difficult times. And so I finally decided to address this sexual abuse issue that I had been told all my life, it's not a big deal, you just need to get over. And, um, and that's when I found the malesurvivor.org website. And it was a watershed for me um, because here you have this community, thousands of men who are communicating anonymously online, telling their stories, supporting each other, using the various technologies that were implemented. There's a chat room, there's a message board, there's a, a facet of the website where you just write your whole story without comment, just put it out there, just you know, to, to, to shed yourself of that, that burden of keeping things quiet and keeping things silent because that is that is probably the hardest burden is is maintaining that silence and so when i got involved with the organization i i was just amazed it was a watershed like i said and and i, I sort of you know if you like it you like it a lot and so i sort of overindulged and i would stay on it for hours and you know and two o'clock three o'clock in the morning and my family was like you gotta get off the computer. <laughs> but this was the first time I'd ever in, engaged in an experience with with peers, like true peers who were honest and supportive and who had walked the road that I that I was beginning to walk. They had a lot of sage advice about what the path is for the survivor, you know, the 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 abuse itself, that's an incident that's awful and horrible. But, but sometimes the, the path of recovery is, is equally as, as traumatic because of the, all of the suppressed feelings, all of the, the, the flashbacks and the, the, the things that you don't want to remember that you can't escape. Um, you know, so that, that becomes in of, of itself a, a secondary trauma that you need to cope with. Um, and, and so that, that, was, that was the beginning of my journey towards healing. Um, I would say that it was a very positive experience for me and I think that uh, the therapeutic model is not the only model to find uh, a, a measure of mental health but therapy is also an important aspect and in my case 
because I'd been to so many bad therapists. Um, at one point, this is getting back to the drug use. At one point, my mother says to me, I'm begging you, just see one more therapist, one once, one more time. So we drive out to his house. He has a home office. And um, he wants to interview me, not about my emotions or any kind of psychopathologies, but just the, the, the mundane behaviors. How much do you drink? Do you ever do this? Do you ever do that? Do you like cocaine? And it was this inventory, and it seemed very strange that a, that a mental health professional, a counselor, would not want to talk to me about my state of mind, but simply my proclivities towards smoking and drinking. That, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I've come to find out he was not working for me. He was working for my mother. Right. I was thinking that, yeah, you weren't, it wasn't about you. And that's unfortunate. Well, that ethical breach um, basically ruined me on any kind of counseling for the next 30 years. Damn. Yeah. So, I mean, it's on me for being a maniac and not seeking counseling, even though there are bad counselors out there. And I think as survivors, if you're listening to this and you've seen a few um, therapists on your own, you probably are shaking your head in agreement right now that, yes, uh, many of the people that you go for counseling are really um, not equipped to deal with the sorts of issues and there is there's a high bar it's a there's a there's a steep curve for people who need specific sexual abuse counseling and and not every um, counselor who hangs a shingle out is is actually competent to do that right so you might have to do some homework well and you also have to be cognizant enough to realize that if it's not going well that you have the power to end the relationship at any time at any time the counselor works for you and if you're getting a weird vibe if you're not connecting if you don't feel like there is a positive relationship between you and your counselor unless you're under some court-ordered you know therapeutic mandate you can walk out at any time and I think a lot of people are reticent to do that and, and I'll say one more thing about therapy in general because I've seen a lot of okay therapists not terrible and um, <laughs> one of the when I was really taking my recovery seriously one of the first persons I saw was somebody who was a CBT therapist which is cognitive behavioral therapy which I recommend um, but I realized after, I don't know, about a year, 18 months of CBT that the counseling relationship had, had basically um, fulfilled all that it was ever going to fulfill. And I really wasn't going to get a lot more out of this individual. He had one speed, CBT. He was good at it, but there was not any other kind of nuance there. And so everything was always under the framework of, of a CBT modality um, and so if you're in counseling right now or you're thinking about counseling for issues related to PTSD or sexual abuse I would encourage you to understand that 
I'm sticking with an individual who has just one modality is, is not necessarily going to be beneficial for the long run. And it's okay to explore that. Again, I have a high regard for CBT and I still use it. it it's, a, it's a valuable tool. Um, and basically, in a nutshell, if you don't know what CBT is, it's basically, it posits the question, well, what if you're wrong about that? So we have all these distorted thoughts. You know, as survivors, we think we're worthless, that we should kill ourselves, that we have a secret that we can never, ever reveal. And CBT asks, well, maybe you're just thinking of it the wrong way. What if you're wrong about those assumptions? Look at, look at the alternative. Maybe, maybe you're not as damaged as, as you want to believe. Maybe you can talk about it. And so it really helps you to unpack thinking that's unhealthy and go to a place where you can see balance and, and more rational thinking. Because of course, you know, the one thing that trauma does is it takes your thinking and it just throws all rationality out the window and you become very, um, at least I did, I became very um, uh, extreme in my behaviors. Yeah, I think a lot of us uh, become very extreme in our behaviors, uh, mostly to try to numb the pain that we're experiencing. Exactly. So that's that's sort of my little two cents about how I I found advocates, and um, you know I, I'm still in therapy. I have a female therapist who I like very much, and uh, she's a psychologist, but she does not specialize specifically in things like um, sexual abuse. Her, her approach is basically a um, enlightened version of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is often misrepresented as um, you know, self-actualization as the top. And self-actualization is actually not the top. Connectivity to your community is the top of that hierarchy. And so she really stresses that building of relationships, that building of of community and um, of course that's why I'm appearing on the journey on podcast and so I didn't thank you before but thank you so much for having me you are welcome thank you I think it's important to have these conversations and I'm all about connectivity I, I, we we have to be connected in order to heal um, and that's how uh, you know I've recovered from I'm in recovery from my addictions and that's uh, through con connection, right? We can't do this in isolation. So I'm curious, what uh, other communities are you connected to that, that help you on your journey? You mentioned male survivor. Right. Um, well, I do a lot of volunteer work. Um, there is a, a youth shelter here in the city we live in, in Seattle. And... Um, you know, as you might imagine, with somebody who's as traumatized as I was, I, you know, I basically sunk right to the bottom. So I've been homeless, I've been suicidal, I've you know lived in my car, I've been absolutely broke, I've dumpster dived for food, I've I've had, um, you know, some of the worst experiences that you can possibly have. And um, so I'm I'm very passionate about underserved communities like homeless youth who age out of uh, foster care or who are basically just you know, adopted kids who are kicked out um, by their adoptive families because they're, you know, they're 18 years old and they don't want to really have to deal with these kids anymore. Um, and a lot of these people uh, end up in, in the streets. A lot of them are 
are sexual abuse survivors, a lot of transgender and their families uh, reject them for those reasons. Um, and so that's another community that I've, that I've connected with because, you know, getting back to the Maslow thing, um, it heals me, it helps me to go back to this underserved community and tell my story in you know, small pieces and show them that there is a way out. Like, yes, I was abused. Yes, I was homeless. Yes, all of these happen. Things happen to me like they're happening to you now. But here I am. And I'm, I'm 45 years old. I'm doing fine. I have a family. I have stability. I have all of the things that that you are being deprived of right now, I've, I've finally been able to gain. And it's really empowering to be able to return to a community and be an example of, of recovery, an example of change, and to help them see that yes, it is possible. And so that, that's another community that, that relationship that, that I think people often forget about is being in service, not simply um, being in a support group but actually doing the work to lift others. So that's, that's something else that I, that I certainly work on. Um, and you're also uh, active on social media. And, <laughs> yes. and, and I believe that's how I found you. I, I really appreciate the things that you say on social media. Yeah, I, I, um, I do a blog. You can find all of my stuff at eddiekedge.com. There's a link to my blog. Um, there's also the front page is my story about my uh, kidnapping and sexual assault. It's the actual archive of the paper. Um, and, you know, I, I participate on Twitter and Facebook and Reddit. And I'll shift gears a little bit here because I'm not just an advocate for survivors of sexual abuse. I'm really an advocate for anyone who's struggling with mental health issues. And the more I engage in the wider community, the more I, I realize that we're basically all saying the same thing. That's true. Be it bipolar, schizoaffective disorder, uh, depression, we're all saying the same thing, which is we all feel isolated, we all feel misunderstood by the larger community or the world outside. We, we all feel like we're undervalued. We all feel like we have much more that we could give, but people really don't, you know, if, if you're out, you know, and not closeted about your, your mental health struggles. Um, you know, people discount you. They feel like you're going to be um, uh, mis... Uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? They feel like you're going to be uh, irresponsible in some way and that you're not going to be able to just be a, a normal functioning person. And uh, so there's a lot of stigma and a lot of sort of mythology that we're trying to overcome as a community of people who have mental health issues who want to advance a more positive image for survivors and for, um, you know, who struggle, who are not necessarily uh, traumatized, but who are, who are just dealing with the everyday realities of their uh, mental health issues. Um, so that's, that's something that I, I spend a lot of time on social media talking about. And, um, That's good. We need more people like you to have these conversations, right? Because we're, we're survivors, right? 
And uh, no one can take that from us. We have survived. And by sharing our stories, whether it's from sexual abuse or a mental illness, we can help other people get access to resources and provide safe spaces for them to, to share their experiences. And that's how we heal. Absolutely. And, and I think just the biggest part of it is legitimizing the discussion. Um, yes. You know, I'm, like I said, I, this, this story starts in the 1980s. And so, you know, three and a half, four decades later, you know, we are just beginning to open up, crack this door on these issues. And um, just being out there and speaking on it is, is really important. And, you know, there's been some high profile celebrities who, who, who've written books and been very vocal about it. Uh, Carrie Fisher comes to mind, who's a hero. Um, but one of my main points that I want to convey is this is not just an issue for celebrities to, to discuss. This is, this is, you know, 40 million people in this country have survived childhood sexual abuse. 40 million people. There's a lot of us out there. Yes. So... This is not just for the odd celebrity to talk about. This is for the 40 million of us to, to say this is an impact. This is, this is a thing. And we're not going to be shamed. We're not going to stop because you, know, you might feel uncomfortable with this discussion. Um, that's, that's not my problem if you're not psychologically equipped to deal with the, the things that I've been having to deal with for the past three decades. So I really advocate for, for people who are just regular folks to try and overcome that barrier. And I know because of stigma and um, the negative reaction that it's very, very difficult for people to want to talk about it. Um, and, and so that's my main motivation for doing all the social media and writing the book and um, and being as out there as I am with podcasts and and all the other media, I want people to understand that I'm just a regular guy, and it's okay to talk about it. It is okay to talk about it, and I invite the 40 million people to to the Journey on podcast. Right? It might take me a while <laughs> to get all of your voices out there, but I will try my best. So if you have a story you want to tell, let me know. Um, Eddie, I truly appreciate your willingness to, to be here today and, and sharing your story of, of hope and, and sur sur survival. I mean, it's very touching, the work that you're doing, um, especially with Male Survivor. And, you know, I can't say enough about Male Survivor. It is a great resource. I follow Male Survivor on all the social media outlets. I follow Eddie. And so I'm going to post everything, uh, the links to your website and your book and uh, your Instagram, all of that, because I think uh, we all have something valuable to say about these topics. And um, for all you folks who are, out, who are listening today, please share the information. And at any time you need to talk, we'll be here. Thanks again, Eddie. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks, CJ. It's been a pleasure.
Thank you for joining me for this awe-inspiring episode of Journey On. I invite you to get in touch with me if you want to share your story. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at DJBurr1022 and on Instagram at TheDJBurr. Survivors are also welcome to join our private Facebook group, Journey On Survivors, at www.facebook.com groups slash Journey On Survivors. And finally, the opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person sharing them. Take what you like and leave the rest. I encourage survivors to share their stories authentically, and I believe every guest on my show has. I value the strength and courage it takes to publicly share our recovery journeys. Please respect yourselves and each other. Till next time, breathe deep and journey on. Get a rare view into the human side of wealth management leaders, innovators, and influencers with the Big Reveal podcast from Suzanne Syracuse in partnership with InvestNet. Tune in and subscribe to find out why she calls it the Big Reveal. The N-OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving.